This episode is a fast-paced conversation with Monica Caparosa. Unlike many of our other guests, her career in the food industry has just gotten going with only 10 years under her belt. Also, unlike many of our other guests, she got into the food industry 100% intentionally. Full determination, not a coincidence. Monica really loves this industry and it shows with how much she's done in such a short period of time. She and I have a special connection since she grew up with my kids and her parents still live right down the street. Monica, welcome today. Thank I'm so you. excited to talk to you. <laughs> we Thank ta- you. We talk to so many people that have so much experience in the food industry. I mean, they're probably, you know, like at the end of their career. Yeah. So I really wanted to talk to somebody who's right in the middle of it and talk about how you got there and everything. Absolutely. So as I've probably, you've pro- I've probably told you before, 90% of the people I talk to got into the food industry accidentally. And you are somebody who got in there on purpose. So tell us how you got interested in it and where you went from there. Yeah. So I uh, got interested in the food industry in high school. Um, I used to watch the Food Network challenge shows and kind of worked my way into the kitchen with my mom, supporting her, making a million meals for people. Uh, and from there, I uh, my family's a Penn State family. So my parents dropped my oldest sister off at college. They're eating ice cream at the Penn State Berkey Creamery. And they decided, they looked up and they're like, oh, food science, that's something that Monica would probably be really interested in. And it's not a very common major that most people know about. So, you know, they talked about it to me and I actually went to Penn state as a high school sophomore, um, or junior to go visit with some of the faculty to learn more about it. And it is the perfect like marrying of food and like the love of being kind of creative, but also I'm a very technical person. So some of those science hard skills that come in, it's that nice little blend of that. So once I learned more about the major, I really, really kind of dove in and immersed myself, I would say, in the food industry. So I went to Penn State and did my Bachelor of Science in food science there um, and really fell in love with people can really connect to food. A lot of everybody buys food. Everybody eats food. People are so far removed from the farm that I think it's really fascinating to be a food scientist, to be so connected to how food is processed and harvested. Because I do think a lot of people are confused about how their food is handled and made. And I really love knowing so much about food and kind of using my science skills that I've gone to many science classes to learn um, and, and be able to kind of help people understand food more. So it's something that I grew up with. Everybody grows up with food and their traditions. And and I was really able to kind of get immersed in it early on and majored in it and really just kind of fell in love with it. I think everybody knows in the world that I talk to that I'm a food scientist. I wear normally pretzel earrings and people are like, oh, those are so cute. And I'm like, thanks, I'm a food scientist. And do they know what that is or do you have to explain no. it? And then it, it really starts a whole conversation, which is really a part of my ethos as a person. I want to help educate other people Mm -hmm. about what food science is. I think people are afraid. And when they hear science, they get even more afraid. Mm -hmm. But really, there's not a reason to be afraid. There's so many intelligent and warm, welcoming people in this industry that wants to help educate people. It's not about the money. It's really all about educating and um, nurturing people. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I I have met lots of people. I had the opportunity to recruit in different areas. 
And every time I came back to the food industry because they were the nicest people. So nice. And, and I think it's because we're, they're working with products that people want to have. They don't yeah. have to have it. Yep. We don't have to have, you know, snacks or candy. We don't even have to have that particular bread no. or that particular bagel. But we want it. And so they make an emotional connection to the food. And so you cannot sell a product that you're just not in love with. And so a lot of people in the food industry have that emotional tie to their product yep. and gets them all excited. Yep. And I, I currently work on products that I grew up in love and you know, they, the company talks about reformulating things and I'm like, listen, this is a nostalgia flavor for me. <laughs> we have to protect that nostalgia piece. And everybody else on the project's like, I've never even heard of this product. And I said, I grew up with it every day after school is my snack. So it is something that is really important and personal to me. And I think a lot of people have that relationship with food. It's personal. Yeah. And I also, when I try to and convince people they should look into food science, I tell them if you really, really like to cook, maybe go be a culinary person. Yeah. But if you really like to create and invent yeah. products that you can share with other people, not just on a one one basis, like one hamburger at a time, but yeah. actually create something people can buy in the store and they can have, then food science might be something you want to do. And there's so many different avenues of food science. I personally don't like to cook, so I like to bake. Um, so my my focus is more in the confections and sweet side, and that really is fun for me. Uh, but there's so many different in school, you learn about food engineering, you learn about quality and microbiology. And then most people coming out of school are like, oh, I want to be in product development. But there are so many other roles that are so critical to our space that I don't think really get enough attention. Um, when you're in school, you have one class of food micro. Um, so there are so many different avenues that you can go into. So even if you aren't in that necessarily like concoction person, but you're very analytical, go into microbiology or go into the food statistics. There's so many different options. Yeah. I think some people get disappointed. They, they did that R and D at school. They finished the project in the semester and yeah. it's great. And then they go <laughs> join a company. They realize, what do you mean this project is going to take a year? Or two years. Yeah. And and I don't think some people realize that you might be stuck with that project for a very long time. Yeah, I think school is a nice snapshot to learn all of the different aspects as well as internships. I did a number of internships and they are intentionally giving you projects that you can start and finish in your three months or six months so that you feel a sense of accomplishment, but the company can also assess how well you can problem solve and think through the planning and dynamics you need to complete a successful project because as a company, they want somebody who can complete all phases of a project. They don't want somebody who can just do the first portion of it. And so that is a big transition after school um, to be able to do longer term projects. I did my master's degree, so that was a two year project for me. So I was very well aware of the length of time it can take to get to a final result on something with my with my research uh, but it's very common to have projects in the industry be some of the projects I'm working on are five years out. So, mm -hmm. so it's one, one year to five years is sometimes they ebb and flow and, and the, the people you work with also ebb and flow because people come in and out at different points in the projects or 
they decide something else is better for their career. So the turnover rate is also drives and implements how you actually action on a project. Tell us about your internships, because I know you had quite a few, and that's really important to getting your career going after you graduate. So tell us about your internships. So I went about internships a little bit differently than I think most. Uh, My goal when I went to college was four internships in four years. And the intention behind that was people let students in and people teach students. The food industry is wide. So we have proteins, we have sweets, we have, you know, grains. So that's a whole different, there's all these different options that you can explore. And you don't really know what you want to do until you do it. And you also really don't know what you don't want to do (laughs) until you do it. So my first internship was with Starkist in Pittsburgh. I was an R&D intern. I worked for Glenn Mast. Shout out to Glenn. You were the best. (laughs) Um, And I don't eat tuna. So (laughs) uh, my mom told me when I was interviewing after my freshman year, if they asked the question, do you eat our product? She told me to say I haven't acquired the taste for it yet. I still don't eat tuna, but that's, I wish I did. I just, I just don't like, I don't like tuna. Seafood doesn't agree with me. So. That's okay. <laughs> but I ate it every day at work because I had to do quality testing on the product. And I, Glenn, fa- Glenn found out you didn't eat tuna. Glenn knew before he hired me <laughs> that I didn't eat tuna. Um So it was every day a summer internship going into the office. I had at that point had only one food science class. And so everything that I learned in that one food science 200 class uh, from Dr. Malolo was covered in my first week of of work. And I was like, okay, now what? (laughs) Everything that I know about food science was just discussed in this first week. I've got about 14 weeks to go. Um, So it was a really phenomenal learning experience in that corporate environment. I also, so I supported the R&D team and the quality team. So I did quality checks on the product. I tasted product. I also understood the process for supply to submit their raw material documentation, something you don't ever get a piece of in in school, Uh, understanding the value of Excel and building correct tables and how you can really utilize those as a time saver and a strength to analyze data. Oh gosh, what else did we do? Oh, we did this project on anchovies and I remember they made me taste it in front of like very high up people. And I was like, this is a horrible experience. I don't even like anchovies. (laughs) It was a new product that they were working on. And for somebody who probably likes seafood, it was a phenomenal product. For Monica, who doesn't eat seafood, I was like, oh God, this was a rough day at work. (laughs) How did you learn to distinguish between good tuna and bad tuna if you didn't like it? Oh, they train you on what is good and what is bad. So your palate is able to evolve and understand, oh, this is a tinny off note or, oh, this is a oxidized from oil flavor versus this is a very fresh uh, product. So I would be tasting like 50 packets or cans a day and weighing and doing like some of the just corporate quality standard checks to just make sure and validate some of the quality the plant quality um product was all okay so I worked with a phenomenal team there even though I didn't like the product I still loved working with everybody and I still do keep in touch with Glenn quite often um and that whole team was you know pretty amazing but those connections I made after my freshman year 
a lot of them have reached out to me on LinkedIn to see, you know, where I'm at, how am I doing? And, and, you know, they impacted my career and all of the decisions that I've made going forward. It's the people you work with that really matter, um, regardless of what portion of the food industry you go into. So what was your next internship? So we know it wasn't tuna. It was not tuna. (laughs) I went to the Hershey company next, uh, big upgrade in my taste profile. (laughs) Good Um, for you. And I was there for six months as a co-op. So I worked on Lou Felice's team, which was again, a really, phenomenal team to work on. Uh, This was the continuous improvement group. So it's not developing new products, but it's taking existing products that are running in production and either improving the efficiencies or working on different lab-based projects that are then we would scale up to be able to run in our different facilities. So I think at that point I had been in five or six of their manufacturing sites. So that was the first time I ever really got to work in a manufacturing site and work with the operators and the people who do their job day in and day out and are experts on their their production lines was really fun to to work with and I was there for 6 months so I got a longer portion of a project that mm-hmm. I got to work on and I know one of the projects that I worked on are, is still currently like live in the market um a portion of a project that I worked on which is pretty cool cuz yeah. I was there and uh Probably 2013. Can so, you tell us which pro- product it is? Uh, the York Peppermint Patty. Oh, so okay. a, a portion of something I worked on. Uh, last I talked to Lou, at least, it was still kind of kind of in, in, in flight. So yeah. I think a lot of people think that once a product is made, that's it. It's no. done. You don't have to do anything with it. And they think the Twinkie they ate, you know, 30 years ago is made exactly the same way with the same ingredients. And I don't think they realize that based on supply, based on... You know, shelf life based on lots of different things. You actually reformulate products all the time. We reformulate based off of growing season. You know, sometimes your flour that you get into a cookie, you have a better harvest or with more protein one year and less moisture and vice versa. So we have to balance our formulations all the time across all industries. Yeah. People want consistency. Yeah. And I mean, even for chocolate... That is a natural product. Yep. I was I was just on vacation in Costa Rica and got to see all they gave us chocolate. I mean, they broke the pod open mm-hmm. and we ate it right out of the pod, which amazed me because it tasted like oranges and lemons and fruit. Citrus. Yeah. And then we they went ahead and made chocolate, like a chocolate sauce for us to dip things in. And they made us hot cocoa. Yum. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful, but it was interesting. And I got to like get everybody because everybody said, now when you grind this up and they grind it for, and they gave us some like 20 minutes, what does it become? And everyone's like powder, powder. And I'm like, nope, a paste. And the mm-hmm. guy goes, you're the first ones that got that right ever. <laughs> I didn't tell him why. I just was like, I smiled. I yeah. went, yeah, I figured that out. You said it has oil in it. Yeah. Makes a paste. Yeah. So, so where did you go after Hershey? (coughs) So my Hershey experience led me to want to be in a production site and really understand what does production look like every day? 
I went to Conagher Foods next. I worked in a cereal plant in Ohio uh, where they made private label cereal. And I worked in the quality team on um, the cereal. And so I was there for three months, which is a standard internship, had a project. And my project was looking at consumer complaints and doing a root cause analysis of where is that complaint coming from on which SKUs. So it really was a phenomenal plant experience because plant life is very different than corporate R&D life. Yeah, I don't think people realize that plants are loud, they're, they're hot, they're cold, they're dusty, mm-hmm. they're not. So tell us a little bit about what the plant was like there. Yes. Yeah, so this was a vertical plant, uh, meaning that they would cook their cereals on the top floor and then it would cascade through the different processes downward to get to packaging. So... I sat in the cooler space. It was my office was literally attached to the freezer cooler unit. Uh, So my space was the only air conditioned space in the plant. Uh, So I sat there and I froze uh, with my two sweatshirts on uh, just kind of working because that's where they had space. You Mm -hmm. know, plants are really confined and constrained on spaces for people to sit and work. So I then would go out into production and they would be like, you're wearing a sweatshirt. Are you serious? Um, and if you go up to the top floor, it was, they were literally cooking and boiling, you know, different grains to make some of the cereals. And then it would go down to the, so if the top floor is one or four, it would go down to three and they would go through the extruders. And then from there through the panning process to add the the syrups and sugars and a lot of the vitamins that get added to cereals and then cooling and packaging was on, on the ground. Uh, vertical process, a lot of stairs, a lot of hardworking people that show up day in and day out and can look at a product and say, oh, this is probably this variation because of X, Y, and Z of the raw material coming in. It's very heartwarming and eye-opening how much these people care and how dedicated they are to making the product that people consume. It is food. People are very personally attached to it. And it was really nice to see the operators actually caring and and really having that pride in producing high quality product. Yeah. And then where did you go after cereal? Cereal, I went to, I went to Campbell's Soup. So I was in Campbell's in New Jersey and I, this was more of an R&D true um, product development role. So I had gone through kind of a introduction to food science at Starkist, a Understanding how to improve, optimize process at Hershey, full quality at at, at Conagra, and then full on R and D product development. So I worked with a couple of different teams on. Part of it was on product that we were going through consumer testing. So we mm-hmm. were getting ready to launch a product and do the final refinements of that product for half of my internship, and then the other portion was actually raw material work. So uh, Campbell's is big into tomatoes. I don't know if anybody knew that. Oh, well, all that tomato soup. (laughs) And so they do a lot of raw material work with their growers out in California to understand the seeds, to understand the growing conditions um, and and how the different impacts of the seasonal varieties impact the final product. So I was fortunate enough to go to California and meet some of the growers, meet some of the um, farmers that harvest the tomatoes we got to ride a harvester I was a very big nerd that day (laughs) because my minor is in international agriculture so I have that a little bit more I understand 
very basic level how food is grown. Mm-hmm. So it was very fun to ride the harvester and watch them harvest the tomatoes. And, and those then, were big. <clears throat> yeah, they're they're humongous. And how the the tomatoes are bred to just fall off the vine really? um, intentionally so that they have less bruising um, on the product. And then they go into these massive trucks that go down the highway to go get processed within like a 10 mile radius. But the tomatoes at the bottom of that truck need to withstand the pressure to not get squished in the, at, from all of the tomatoes that are sitting on top of them. That is amazing because I know when I pick tomatoes, I even just a bowl. I'm worried that the ones I just piled on top are going to smush the other ones. So they're bred and genetically um, formulated. I don't know. I'm not a geneticist (laughs) to um, have a tougher skin Mm -hmm. so that they can support that weight. Um, So it was a phenomenal. It was so fun to go visit the farmers, understand that these are real people growing your food. They are family farmers that have been doing this for years and work with Campbell's to be able to produce, you know, their their tomato soup. They make a lot of the raw materials that are then transferred to other production sites to put them into finished raw, finished finish good. Yeah, so. so you're excited to make these things, but these people are excited because they're looking at these, this can of tomato soup knowing that their tomatoes are in there. Yeah. They get real excited about that. They get super excited and it's it's family run. So it was really cool. I come from a family business, so it's cool to see family businesses still being really supported in our industry. Yeah. So now that you've done these different things, have you at this point decided whether you want to be in the lab in R&D or you want to be in, in the plant anymore? So I definitely like the roles that cross over between corporate and production in the plant. So my focus turned to being corporate side, uh, but still with a lot of travel to the different plants and production sites. So uh, that's where I focused kind of product development side as opposed to like the quality or the continuous operation improvement. I'm definitely product development and definitely more uh, hands-on at that lab level and Mm -hmm. then scaling up to production. Now, during these internships, did you have to ask for some of these opportunities? Like, can I go to California? Can I go do these things? You are your own biggest advocate. Uh, So I'm an asker. People can always tell me no. But Mm -hmm. if you do your research and you present your facts and you lay out, you know, I want to go on this trip because I think it will be beneficial because of X, Y, and Z. It ties into my project this way. And I think it'll help me be able to better rationalize why the work that I'm doing is impactful. And at the end of an internship, you present your project. So being able to kind of tie things up with a nice bow is generally a better approach to be able to go and visit the sites that you're you're working with. Um, I think a lot of people are afraid to ask, and it does require a substantial amount of money from the businesses mm-hmm. to be able to, number one, they're paying you as an intern. There's generally some housing costs that mm-hmm. they do throw your way. Uh, and then there's also travel costs. If you want to do the travel, that is couple hundred bucks out of their their budgets which are already very tight Mm -hmm. I don't think as a food scientist in school you realize how much is focused on budgeting and like your cost of producing your raw materials and the whole R&D budget you don't talk about that at all in in school Mm -hmm. so I think you're your best advocate and if you are interested in something and you can ask and frame it up in a way the worst they're going to say is no okay we're the other people you went to school with 
Were they getting internships and were they doing this? They, a lot of my friends did um, get internships. A lot of them went back to the same company year after year, which is a really great model too, because a lot of them still work at those companies now, 10 years later. Maybe not quite 10 years. How old am I? <laughs> it's um, but it, <laughs> um, So it's, that's a really great opportunity as well. You get to network better within the company if it's someplace that fits your, what you want from a company culture perspective. Um, your job is a big part of your life. So company culture matters and understanding who you're working with day in and day out and those, those company values uh, ha- helped me decide kind of where I wanted to go next. I don't necessarily know if a lot of my friends were able to travel necessarily as much to different production sites because a lot of them were based out of corporate. Okay. So. Did, when you were doing your internships, were there other interns at the same time? Yes. So some of them had massive intern programs and sometimes I was just by myself. So we ran the gamut. When I was by myself, I had a lot more interaction with Um, some of the people who would eventually become my peers. So people that are recent grads that are, you know, working on projects, there's a lot more coaching at that level. Whereas the companies that had a lot more interns, they had a structured intern program. So there were events that we could go to. There was a lot of socialization happening with um, people that were my own age. A lot of the team building um, happened too with those interns, which I thought was a really great perspective on how the company spends their money to build their teams as a full-time employee. Um, and when I was at Conagra, they had a really large intern program at that time. I think there were over 300 interns that were spread. Oh. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but they were spread between corporate and then a lot of us were actually at production sites. Um, and we they flew everybody there three times to Omaha, Nebraska mm-hmm. to be able to network and connect and, and meet with leadership. And that was a really phenomenal intern program. That's an amazing facility. Yes. So, and now they're in downtown Chicago. So I'm not sure how the intern program has shifted just from the cost of Chicago versus Omaha. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different. Um, So I think there's, there's a lot to be said about internship programs. I'm a product of one. I hope one day to be able to hire an intern. Glenn, this is for you. I will hire the freshman. <laughs> how, did, how did you get your internships? Like, how did you get StarKist? I am a person that I just, I poke and I say, hello, will you hire me? So I had an email from my cousin who works in the packaging industry and I cold contacted and I said, hi, I'm a freshman. I go to Penn State. Do you have any internship opportunities? And they said no. And I said, okay, well, can I at least come down and tour the facility and, and kind of get to know your team and just kind of understand what you guys get to do? I'm new, so I'm just trying to learn. And they said, okay. And so then I went to lunch with them after. And Glenn goes, you know, we don't have a role. And I said, that's fine. It's okay, you know, but if you do have money, I, you know, I'd really love to learn. And then I just kept emailing and, you know, hey, Glenn, any update on if you guys maybe found some money (laughs) or just an opportunity for me to come learn? I think I was hungry. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I was hungry. Maybe not for tuna, but uh. <laughs> definitely not. I remember I, I took you to several IFT yes. events in Pittsburgh so yeah. that you could meet the Pittsburgh people because yeah. the best way for you to get an internship in your freshman year was local. Yes. 
So I was Pittsburgh is local. And I don't know if Glenn was ever at one of those. I thought was, I was so young. I remember thinking the one was at the science center. Mm -hmm. Yes. And one was, I think culinary to America or yes. something like that. Yeah. And, and so that was a really great as a high school student, after I did the Penn state tour, understanding that was my first IFT interaction. Um, but really it's, it's just being kind and considerate and showing that you have passion for something. Mm -hmm. it, but Glenn told me it's because you kept emailing Monica. <laughs> you were so persistent <laughs> and the biggest advocate for yourself yeah. is the reason we found money. So, yeah. um, Glenn is, Glenn is a wonderful teacher. Yeah, he is. Now your other internships, how did you get those? A lot of them post opportunities online and a lot of them also came to Penn State to recruit. Okay. So they come in the fall to recruit and you really, they start the first or second week of school. So you really need to be prepared going into this calendar school year to be able to understand what your goals are for next summer um, to be able to interview or apply and interview hopefully with a lot of the recruiters that come to the food science club. So that's how I got my Hershey one. There was a, they only had a co-op opportunity at Hershey, which did present a challenge for my school calendar. So I then had to go an extra semester um, at Penn state to finish because our classes were only offered once a year. But six months at a company was incredibly valuable. And for me, it worked out as a big value, value add for me because mm -hmm. I currently work in the confection space. So Hershey set me up for that. So what was your first job? Uh, well, I had, I did my master's at Wisconsin. Oh, talk about your master's a little bit. Yep. So I went to University of Wisconsin in Madison. The only program I applied to because Rich Hartel is the candy science uh, guy. So it was the program that when I was at Hershey, they said, if you're going to go get your master's, go get it with Rich. Cause I knew at that point, confections was my jam. That mm. was what would become my bread and butter. And so I interviewed with Rich and he accepted me as a candy student, uh, in his program, meaning I ran the candy school from a administrative background perspective. And that allowed for my, um, my grad school to be paid for. So I did research on top of it, but I also ran short courses for Rich. Um, I did tell him a couple of weeks ago that running candy school was probably more beneficial for my career than my actual master's degree, because you learn so many skills about project management, networking, and working with people from that opportunity. I learned a lot from my master's and how to analyze and read data. But the more skills that I use on a day-to-day -day basis definitely came from the interpersonal connections and management of a course of that size. Um, it's a pretty, the Candy School course is two weeks of 33 industry professionals coming in and about 37 instructors coming through those doors. So it's a lot of administrative pieces to pull together on top of your classwork for your grad school classes and doing my own research. Did you get to attend the candy school at all? I did. I mean, I sat in the back. <laughs> Is lunch coming, you know? <laughs> so at this point, I think I've attended all of the lectures and paid attention across the four that I, I went through. So he teaches it as an undergraduate class. So you take it as the grad student just in the background. 
And then I volunteered my first year before I ran candy school. And then I ran it for two years with another grad student. Um, So that means I probably have had each lecture at least once where I, you know, listen Mm -hmm. to it. It's very scientific heavy. So we definitely get into the crystallization dynamics and how all of that happens. You go through corn syrup, you go through sucrose, you go through gum, mince, fudge, fondant, marshmallow, nougat, runs the gamut. Yeah. So it's no lab, no, no making candy. No, it is a, it's a lecture component and then every lecture is paired with a lab. Ah. So it's a lot of dishes if you're the grad student. Um, But it was, the labs were, I think the most fascinating part because we would run, if there were 33 students, we sometimes would run 33 variables. So each student got a different formula so that you could understand how changing your percentage of sucrose and, you know, or changing your dextrose equivalents for your corn syrup makes a massive difference. So it was very benchtop based scientific um, change one, one variable. So you can understand cause and effect for, I think for fudge, I think we made like 20 fudges. So it's very much marrying the lecture material to hands-on lab work. That is one thing I can't make is fudge. I can make anything (laughs) in the world with fudge. And my sister who at the beginning when we let her make the fudge, she could make fudge, but she didn't really make anything else. She wasn't a cook or a baker or anything, but she could whip out the fudge perfectly. And I don't know how many (laughs) went in the garbage. I mean, you know, failed yeah, it was my failed experiment, but at home it feels expensive. Yeah, it yeah. is very. Ex- I mean, working with a lot of the premium ingredients becomes very expensive. So when you're developing, you have to keep an eyeball on your P and L and understand. Okay, my my marketing team needs me to keep this raw material cost below X, Y, and Z. How can I do that and still produce the quality product that they're looking for. So I mean, I do that at home too. I'm like, Oh gosh, I just ruined a batch of something. I know that was like so much worth of like really expensive ingredients and Um, starting over. Yeah. But, but in the food industry, I mean, sometimes those little mistakes will save you a lot of money down the road. They really do. And running industrial trials, it was sticker shock to me at first You know, some of the raw materials are so expensive and you have to order enough to make sure you have a buffer for when some a challenge happens in operation during a trial and you have to throw a batch out. It's a costly learning experience, but not having the raw material is even more costly because you've already paid for the line time to run production. So you're not running variables in your trial, then you're, you're not learning. Right. Right. So, so after the master's, what's our first job? I interned at Lint when I was in my master's program and I was there for four months and had a phenomenal experience. So they're in New Hampshire. So I knew working in confections is where and my what kind heart of candy was. do they make? Because I don't think that's one people will recognize. So they make the Lindor truffles. Ah. So they do all of their North America production for the Lindor truffles out of their Stratum, New Hampshire facility. They also have like the Lindor sticks, which are the truffles, but in stick form. And Lint also owns Ghirardelli. So I got to kind of see some of their Ghirardelli production. They make their own chocolate. So 
seeing their chocolate production and then also seeing their solid bars. Yeah. Did you go to get to go to California for Ghirardelli? I did not. Oh. That was not in the budget. Ooh, have, you, have you ever been there? <laughs> I have been to Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco, you know, do the ice cream shop yeah. experience. Uh, super fun to... You get to see products that you touch in the, in, we call it in the wild when you see it <laughs> in out, the wild. <laughs> out in the supermarkets. <laughs> um, and so after I was at Lint, I went to, to Blommer, um, after I graduated with my master's. So Blommer Chocolate Company is a supplier of chocolate. They're the largest roaster of cocoa beans in North America. Uh, so really went based off of my master's research was less than use in chocolate. So different sources of lecithin. I actually used Blommer's chocolate in my research. So it was kind of fun to go to the source of some of my free raw materials that were donated um, and and work with that team in the applications lab. Um, So that was my first full-time gig on a contractor basis while somebody was out on maternity leave. Uh, And then I... They didn't have money for my headcount, which was unfortunate, but that sales team took me out uh, to some of their customers to help me find a job. So the food industry is such a supportive industry and again, so friendly and so kind. And I especially see that in the confectionery space there. It is a family and I've now had mentors and people that I've known for almost a decade by going to different conferences as a student that I, I see now at conferences all the time. And it's, it's amazing to see the support network that mm-hmm. exists in the confectionery space. Yeah. Back to chocolate for a second. I don't think people realize that some candy companies don't make their own chocolate. No. They would go to a place like Blommer who makes it because bringing cocoa from, from uh, the foreign countries, because we can't grow it in this in, around yep. here. So you have to bring it to the United States and then process it that they actually make all kinds of chocolate. And you can pick which kind of chocolate you want from them Yep, to make your candy. Making chocolate is a really challenging process to do it correctly, continuously. As you mentioned, a lot of the, all of the beans are imported to the U.S. So making sure you get your same flavor profile consistently is really important because beans grown in Ghana do not taste like the same beans that are grown in Ecuador. So you do have bean to bean variability based on the soil and the climate that these these trees are in. And the even the fermentation process, once a, a pod is is grown and it's harvested and they scoop out the cocoa beans from the pod they're they're in a pulp and then they ferment them for a couple of days and then they dry them and a lot of these farmers are family cocoa farmers and they belong to like a co-op and the beans are sold from the co-op and that's how the farmers then get paid but controlling bean quality is incredibly challenging and it requires a lot of work at the origin of growth and so a lot of there are a lot of chocolate suppliers out there so Barry Calibo, Blommer, um, Klassen Quality Chocolates and and I think Cargill or Olam are the major producers for North America. Yeah and then they have to work a lot of these come from third world countries so then they have to get into the politics and the you know, and making sure that they're getting them from um, ethical suppliers and... Yes, ethical suppliers. And then also you're dealing with families that are trying to just, you know, get by. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot of money 
through different programs, even with, you know, Hershey, I think there's this called Coco Link or something along those lines to be able to get them the resources to be able to understand the weather and the growing patterns and a lot of these different opportunities to get a better quality product. You have to educate all of those people over there. And so a lot of the chocolate companies spend a lot of money at Origin to be able to boost these families into a, a better living state. I think Coco sometimes gets a lot of negative press, but there's so much money that is going into supporting these people. Yeah, I know they do it in the coffee industry too, which is very closely related to the cocoa yes. industry. And they go in and build schools yep. and dig wells yep. and build hospitals. Because if they don't have a healthy family, they're not going to get a healthy crop out of these workers. No, And so they do a lot more support than just buy the product from them. Correct. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hands in the pot. So making sure that the families are actually getting the money is really important to the growers or to the, to the companies to make sure the growers are getting the money. Yeah. I think sometimes it's why they build the school, the hospitals, dig the wells, because if they hand them the money, that well might never get dug. Correct. The school (laughs) might never get built. The teacher might never get hired. You know, so, and I know they give them things like livestock and they yes. give them, and they try to do a lot of things that have to do with, don't have to do with money, but that they get what they need so that they can live. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of the families are a couple generations now mm-hmm. growing the, the cocoa beans. Uh, and I know a lot of research in the U.S. is done on cocoa. Because doing research here means that they we can understand some of their growing conditions over there and support better. You don't know how your product's growing. You don't know some of the challenges that they face um, when they're growing. And we have the means to do some of that research here in North America. A lot of research is done in North America and Europe um, to support these families and, and these farmers. Yeah. So where did you go after Blommer? After Blommer, I went to Ferrara Candy Company. That's where you are now. And that's where I am now. So Ferrara and, well, I'm with Ferrero now, but it's the same family. Um, <laughs> so I joined the cookies team on uh, at Ferrara, so the cookies, cones, and crust team, and I've supported product development ever since. So, what kind of cookies? The mother circus animals is what I've predominantly worked on for my tenure in there, and famous Amos. Okay. Um, so my team called me the mother of mothers. Yeah. <laughs> I now work on our chocolate brands, so now I'm the grandmother of mothers because somebody else is tending to the care of those products. Oh no. <laughs> um, so I I've spent a lot of time. It uses a compound coating on the outside of it, so instead of a chocolate, you use compound coating. It has a different fat than cocoa butter. Um, so I worked on on those projects because it's very close to my master's and my background. And so now I support our chocolate business. Um, and yeah, I traveled to Europe recently for a couple of weeks to be able to see our production sites internationally and uh, work with our teams in, um, in Alba, Italy, which is where Ferrero's headquarters is based out of. So spent a lot of time really getting to know people from all over the world uh, and, and working with all the different time zones on a daily basis to just have a true appreciation for food is universal. 
you know, food people definitely have a very personal connection to food that they grew up with. And we support brands, the Keebler elves are I don't know how old, but it's over 150 yeah. some years. Butterfinger celebrated its 100th anniversary this year. So we support brands that people know and love. Uh, and and working in Chicago, I, I get to talk about, you know, these brands and how they used to be made in Chicago uh, in one of my volunteer hobbies on the, the Chicago River. So uh-huh. you get to see where the old Curtis candy factory was where they made baby Ruth's and Butterfingers back over a hundred years ago. So for people who don't know, when you're talking about these river tours, you're talking about, these are open boats. They like double, it's like the double decker bus on the river. On the river. Yes. And then you get to be that person who points out all these things and tell them all these stories. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's my volunteer hobby. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with the Chicago Architecture Center. So oh, that's funny. So, but Chicago's a big food city. It is. And uh, I love living in Chicago. And I really love on my tour being able to sometimes you can smell chocolate on the boats because. Mm-hmm. Blommer roasts cocoa beans not far from the river. So you can sometimes smell chocolate. You can see about 15 to 30 different. Food corporate headquarters from the river. So when when I lived in Chicago, I lived in the suburbs and we lived near a General Mills cereal plant. We didn't really notice it too much until they did the chocolate cereals. And then we (laughs) noticed it when they burned off the cereal. They that was probably part of their cleaning process. They would burn and we would smell burned cereal all day long. Yep. And then you go back to they would back to producing and I don't think they did this every week they did it probably once in a while yeah but we would smell that burned cereal I remember working at Hershey you could always tell when they were roasting peanuts for the Reese's plant right down the road it always smelled like peanut butter it was great yeah but I'm I'm curious like do people with peanut allergies do they have a problem when they're roasting I don't know (laughs) you know it's always been something I'm curious about yeah like in the air yeah you know yeah because that depending on how severe your allergy is i guess i know some people can't even touch it can't even touch someone who touched it so that would be they probably don't hire too many people with peanut allergies but the general public would be a problem yeah that's why i always wonder when they burn leaves i always feel bad for all the people who have asthma oh yeah everybody in the neighborhood's burning leaves and i'm thinking those people are running for cover That's got to be really bad. Hard on the... Yeah. Yeah. So tell me some of your... Well, first let me ask you this. The company you work for right now is not a name brand, a candy company to the general public. So tell us some of the brands that they make. Yeah. So Ferrero uh, is a privately family-owned company. They do make brands that I think a lot of people are aware of, but they don't necessarily know that Ferrero makes them. So they make Nutella, uh, I think, is the most iconic brand that people in the U.S. are familiar with. Between Nutella and Tic Tac, uh, they also make the Kinder Bueno bars. So those are starting to kind of trickle onto shelves right now. Uh, But other brands that they've purchased in the U.S. has allowed them to get a larger distribution in the U.S. So they purchased like those Keebler cookie brands from Kellogg's we've purchased um Ferrara candy company just purchased Jelly Belly or yes. they're in agreement right now um and, and Ferrara operates a little bit different than Ferrero because Ferrara is still an independent company from the the family business 
but we, we keep acquiring brands. Uh, the chocolate business came from Nestle when they sold their North American confection space. So they buy a little bit of everything, which is phenomenal. Um, and other brands that I think are popular, the Frere Rocher, obviously it's the name is in, that's mm-hmm. really what I think is what people think of when they hear right. Ferrero. Uh, but Ferrero is, is not the same family as Ferrara. Uh, <laughs> We just talk about one letter difference, right? Yes. Yes. So F-E-R-R-A-R-A, candy company. (laughs) That is a Chicago family that started that company. Okay. And then Ferrero, (laughs) F-E-R-R-E-R-O, is um, the Ferrero family from Alba, Italy. So. It's, it, you know, everybody's like, oh, who do you work for? I'm like, oh, close enough. <laughs> oh, whatever. All of, whatever you can get the vowels in there. <laughs> so we've we've spent um, a few years, I would say, integrating the businesses from the North American owned entities into the Ferrero systems. Yeah, because I think that most people look at their food and they say, OK, you worked for Campbell's. We know what that is. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize that Campbell's owns Pepperidge Farm. Correct. And then they look at Hershey and they think they, you know, and, and most of Hershey's everything with Hershey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you if you worked for M&M Mars, everyone thinks with all the M&M Mars products, they understand that. But when you work for a company who purchases other brands, yeah, then, the, you know, if you say, well, I work on the Keebler elf cookies and they're like, but that's Keebler. You don't work for Keebler. Yeah. So brands are owned by companies. And I think a lot of the public don't really realize that. You know, I think Smuckers, everybody knows they have jelly, but yeah. they also have Jif, you know, that peanut butter and jelly go beautifully together. Yes, but but Smuckers, is their money comes out of pet food and coffee. Yes. And jam and jelly is just one it's, of the it's things. It's not their bread and butter. No. And in matter of fact, they just hang on to it because... I think people would just, I don't know what people would do, that their heads would explode if they yeah. found out that Smuckers wasn't Smuckers, yeah. Smuckers Jam and Jelly. I, they I, just keep making it. Yeah, they really do. And they're good at it. Yeah. I think one thing that I wish I had more of in school was business. I think as a food science major, you get all of the science courses. Holy moly, do you get the science courses? I could probably do with a few less uh, science classes, um, but I... As a food scientist, as a product developer, I work so much with my business counterparts in marketing and finance and operations and procurement that going into the industry, it's a little bit more of a black hole mm-hmm. with a very technical background. So I think if I were going to school now, I probably wouldn't have taken my art history class. I probably would have taken a business class yeah. because it's actually something that I use now that right. I've had to learn outside of school. Right. And I think that the food industry is doing a better job with the business part of it because I know when I first started working with people years and years ago in R&D, they had no idea about a budget. They were not told how much anything cost. They were told to reformulate something. They didn't even know what the impact of their product was. They don't know. And if something got taken away from them or a project just got canned, they were never given any explanation. They just figured, well, somebody changed their mind. Yeah. And they didn't understand the impact of their work. And I think they do a better job now of letting them know, you know, the impact. And maybe it's the, it's the fact that we have all these different computer programs. So the information can be there yeah. and they have access to it because before they, I guess they would have had to walk up to the finance department and sit down and have a conversation to know anything. 
technology has certainly changed the way we've worked. Uh, the collaboration is huge now for us. And my, my marketing team sits in New Jersey, but I sit in Chicago. But we are still having conversations with them daily on, you know, Teams or Zoom. And I think the pandemic helped a lot of open a lot of those doors for more collaboration virtually to get everybody what they need. Also, like we support plants. I don't sit at a production site now. So being able to have those open dialogues with the operations team and understand the challenges that the operation team faces before you develop a product is also critical because ultimately they're the people that are going to need to run this product sustainably and efficiently. So if you need to formulate products in a specific way due to labor reasons, you need to have those conversations before you lock in a final formula. You know, like what size case does your chocolate chips come in? Is it a 50 pound case? Okay, then maybe for a batch of cookie dough, I will round it so it's an even case so that the operators can just dump five cases in a mix instead of five and a quarter because you lose product because Mm -hmm. at the end of a shift, if they haven't run it, they throw it out or you lose time from operators because they're now having to measure out a case of product and they Mm -hmm. can't be doing something else. So you might be paying for an extra person, which all adds up. So collaboration with the business, not just R&D, but also marketing and operations and procurement is really important. Tell us about one of your fun projects, something that you did that you just really enjoyed. Oh, boy. My first mother's project, I think, was my most fun because it was something that was so new to me. I had very... I had a lot of varied experiences in my internship, but I had never really seen a project from ideation and concept the whole way through to production and then seeing it out in the wild. So uh, The Mother's Mythical Creatures was like my first everyday product that I launched. It is the mother circus animals, which are the pink and white um, animals covered with compounds, so frosting, mm-hmm. and they have nonpareils on them. They're pink and white. Yes. And they are circus animals. So uh, <laughs> the mythical creatures was the unicorn, mermaid, Loch Ness monster and dragon version oh, of this. The kids must love that. Yes. And it's purple and white and it doesn't use nonpareils. It uses sanding sugar instead. So a little bit more of a crunchy texture when you eat it. And so that product is an everyday product. And I just had a lot of learning. We partnered Um, with a co-man on this one. So I really enjoyed working with that co-man team. They spent a lot of time just helping me understand uh, basic cookie production and processing because I started two weeks before COVID hit. So a lot of my learning was virtual and I wasn't allowed to go to the plants for, gosh, the first six to nine months, really. So as a product developer, it becomes very challenging to understand how your products are made. Uh, So I spent a lot of time on phone calls with, with different team members trying to explain. So you were working from home. I worked from home. Yep. For, well, I started February of 2020 um, with Ferrara and then we went to work from home like middle of March with the rest of the world. 
thinking it was only going to be a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, it was more than a few weeks. Yeah. And, and our role is important to go to our production sites, but our production sites are not in Chicagoland. They're not in Illinois. So you really couldn't travel at that point in time. Um, so that project, I think, was the most fun just from a, everything was new, everything was fresh, figuring out the process, working with the marketing team and trying to pick away what their vision was and make it come to life. But do it with a budget. Again, you don't learn about budgets in school. So that awareness piece was a good learning opportunity. Uh, and the product is great and it's on the shelf. And I remember seeing it the first time I wasn't <laughs> expecting to see it on shelf. Uh, and I got so excited and then I stood in target and I was like, Oh, you guys, you know, maybe you would like these. <laughs> You're selling them. <laughs> <laughs> selling them and then um i think the the next time i went to target i was with my friends they're like oh Did my you gosh do selfies? i have selfies okay. with all of my products yes <laughs> um and my family members have also sent them to me like selfies with my product in the store um which is really cute oh that's funny. and now my niece does eat them so it's really just it is a personal product it's personal because i help develop mm -hmm. it and bring it to life but my niece loves it so that i think is even more rewarding watch her like go to town eating them and playing yeah. with the little shapes so and, and how many of these have you eaten yourself oh god <laughs> there's a lot of products transparently i don't like to eat anymore because mm -hmm. you go through so much sensory taste testing as yeah. product product ages or as you're doing startup um a lot yeah. a couple hundred pounds <laughs> I, I I worked with a food company once and they allowed their employees at the time, and I don't know if they still do, to eat right off the line. And they did it. Go. They did it for several reasons. One is they caught mistakes. I mean, because sugar and salt looks the same. Yeah. And so the product, you know, they catch a mistake right away. So that was great for them. And they also found that you let people do that for a couple, like a week, they never ate it again. They just rarely, they have to be starving to eat it. Yeah. And then in the, and then they let them take as much as they wanted home with them. So at the end of the day, you know, they'd have all the ones that had just been weight checked or just been, you know, checking the seals in the packages yeah. and that couldn't go Good in. Good product, but yeah, they just not can't, saleable. Yeah. So they would say, you could take as much as you want home. Well, they found out that after about a month, people stopped taking anything home. So they didn't they want had, it. They had no theft. Yeah. It was like they wouldn't steal something they were given. And they even said Halloween, Christmas, because it was a candy company. You can give this to your friends. Take it all you want, you know, mm -hmm. the, at the end of the day. You can't take all you want. You can take whatever's there. Like yeah. there's like 20 boxes and you want to take 15 of them? Go ahead. Yeah. And this way nobody was stealing anything because. It's a good model. Yeah. Would not pass today. <laughs> I don't know. This was only like. 20 years ago. <laughs> and I remember because the person who worked in the QA lab had all the product that they tested and she said it was just, nothing was opened. Everything was just tested by Her seals. Yep. And they, they, uh, she sent me a huge box of it right before Halloween. And it was like, this is wonderful. It was my very favorite candy. So I was like, happy as could be. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to visit a plant. Uh, it was an ice cream bar company. Oh, yeah. Okay? So they make ice cream candy bars. I don't even know if they still make them. But anyways, we were standing at the end of the line. And half of the product was packaged and going to boxes. The other half was going into garbage bins. 
And we're standing there and we were there for like an hour standing there and I couldn't stand it anymore. I finally said, why, why are you throwing away half of the product? And he said, well, the line, the package, the packaging equipment's down. Mm-hmm. That's your bottleneck and, every, everywhere. And everything comes off this line, splits into two packaging areas. So we can't shut the line down for half the package. And I said, well, how long has it been down? And he says, it's been down for about three days. And they were just putting it in huge wheeled garbage cans and sending it out to the garbage. It couldn't be reworked or whatever. Yeah. And they said they were losing like 10000 at the time. This is like 30 years ago, $10,000 an hour. Mm-hmm. And they thought that was acceptable to keep the other half of the line working so they had something to sell. Well, it depends on who you're selling that product to. Yeah. Because <laughs> Walmart, you need to have you need to have product. Yeah. Because you otherwise you get hit with fines. Yeah. So they were running it and I was just standing there going, I said, Well, if you told me I would have brought my cooler. <laughs> I mean, because there was nothing wrong with this product. Unfortunately, that happens a little bit more than is is your I'm able to stomach, you know? Sometimes when you do run trials. I do need 10 hours worth of production data to make sure that, you know, we ran one product. It worked beautifully for six and a half hours. And exactly at that seven hour mark, it wouldn't run anymore. And it was, you know, we still really don't know why it wouldn't run. Um, But it was something in the formulation that, you know, a layer of product builds up over time and you're Mm -hmm. cleaning it off, but you're never really getting back to a baseline. And, and so, you need longer trials to be able to identify a lot of those problems, which means a lot more product goes to, it goes to waste. And I would say waste in quotes because a lot of it in our industry at least goes to like animal feed. Mm -hmm. So we can sell it for pennies, um, make some, some money back off of it, but it's not fully wasted, which makes me a lot happier. Uh, It doesn't just go to the garbage. Yeah. I, I went to a Smucker's peanut butter and jelly sandwich facility they're making the sandwiches and anything that was scrapped because you know there's little round sandwiches all the crust and any sandwiches that didn't quite make the you know the quality check they sold to the pig farmers yep yep and, and that was that was great this ice cream when they couldn't it was just a dairy product with chocolate yeah. and just melted into a mass of i don't know what at the bottom of those garbage cans yeah and so that couldn't do it but i know a lot of companies do sell a lot of their waste as they say yeah to to the to the farmers or to whatever feed and my my friend she has her phd in animal science and feed science so they take the formulations as similar to what we do in food science but in animal science and nutrition and she has to figure out their for, feed formulations based on the varying waste that they get so she understands from a macronutrient what the animals are getting and if you have 10 truckloads of cookies this week and five truckloads of chocolates next week, how they balance their formulations are really important to be able to incorporate that. So the food industry, she has a, a, her bachelor's is in food science. And then, um, so the food industry doesn't just stop with the food that goes to the shelf. It does kind of circular if you think about it yeah the animal feed feeds the animals that then enter the food yeah the food industry the circle. circle of life <laughs> <laughs> there you go the circle of life well i i know that i have uh, a problem with throwing food away mm-hmm. you know it means like i couldn't work in a restaurant where someone sends back half a plate if i'm looking at it go half a basket of of rolls and i'm like 
have to throw these away. They're perfectly good. But when you do a plant trial, that all goes in the garbage. Yeah. We, we calculate out how much waste we're going to have. I mean, plant trials are necessary. Yeah. You can't not run a plant trial because in order for a consumer to be able to afford a product, we need to understand how much it costs to run it and what are those line settings and how fast can we run it to still maintain quality or um, how fast is the package is our bottleneck packaging? Most mm-hmm. of the time it is. So how can we run to be able to f- feed packaging to avoid downtime? Those are all things you learn at trials and Sometimes like you can do a trial in two hours and get what you need. And sometimes you need to run a two day trial or a week long trial. Uh, But there's sadly a lot of waste that's produced. But I like to think of it as you're then preventing further downtime and further waste from being produced when you're running thousands and thousands of pounds of product. Yeah, I went to a plant that made frozen pancakes and the grill and it was little teeny grills little squares with each pancake in a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. And then they went over and flipped over into a conveyor belt at the bottom and kept going. And there was a guy there with just a little stick to make sure that they were all lined up and everything. And it was going at a nice, slow pace. And they told me that when they first ran it, they ran it all out fast as they could. And they had pancakes flying everywhere. Mm -hmm. The waste was incredible. They said, just, uh, just hundreds and hundreds of pancakes. And they hired a, a master degreed person for an internship and had him do a time study and figure out the optimal time to run it. Yeah. And they were now wasting maybe five pancakes. Yeah. When you, when you really spend the time investing in understanding and controlling your process, you end up saving so much money, but you also end up like getting rid of frustration for the operators because ultimately the operators are the ones that have to deal with the day-to-day line challenges and struggles. And if they can't run the product well, they're going to get in trouble because they're not hitting their numbers, but they're also frustrated because they can't figure out why they can't run it well. So it's a lot of money and time, effort and energy and resources go into studying those optimal line speeds. But also we need to design lines that are meant to run correctly (laughs) or with the correct mindset and intention when they're built because that saves a lot of headaches too yeah but some of these lines are kind of frankenstein together (laughs) yes they're just i mean they just they just bring parts and you know you've it doesn't look anything like what it started out to be oh franken lines we've seen them all (laughs) we i've worked on lines that are over 100 years old and you're like okay this is working oh this is this oven we moved from one plant to another other when it was 40 years old Mm -hmm. perfect and now we're still running it and Mm -hmm. as long as you maintain equipment like it's great to run on uh and and having proper Historical documentation maybe is is great um, to understand why things were done. There was a clear reason why things were modified. Knowing why is sometimes a mystery. Yeah. So what's the happiest mistake you ever made? Something that you were like, I mean, because think about some of the foods we eat. Mm -hmm. Like whoever thought of putting those two things together or whoever thought of eating that. Have you ever made anything where it was like this disaster just created a really good product? Oh, boy. You know, I don't really know. Not even in a lab at school when you guys are playing around with stuff? I think I, I mean, I think I just have, we've created so many different things that I, uh, 
Um, I don't know. What is the happiest? Did you ever make something that you thought was really good and it's never going to see the light of day in market? Yes. Like what? There was one product that we made, tested really great, but somebody very high up did not like it. What was it? I don't really want to say <laughs> what it was. We can tell us. You don't tell us what company or anything. Just yeah, I mean, was it the candy? It was a cookie product. It was a cookie so product? So we, we went the whole way to get ready to go to launch, and it was canceled at the very, very end. <gasps> you so. didn't even have the marketing numbers that could override this person? Nope. Oh. Nope. So. That's too bad. People. I don't think people realize that happens too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've spent years working on this project. We had a couple of different project managers or marketing people on it. A lot of people were really, I was really excited about it. And she just didn't see the light of day. We ran trials. We spent a lot of money to bring it to life. Uh, resources cost money mm-hmm. for the company. Um, so a lot of people spent a lot of time working on this project. Um, I thought it was a great product. Um, I think kids would have loved it. And uh, she just never saw the light of day. I always wonder how many times something like that happens and somebody leaves a company, goes to another company, and then you're walking down the aisle and you're like, a project made by another company. Yeah. <laughs> they see it. You know, they see the, the light. I, I had a friend, and this is going back to my very, very beginning of my career. So this is like 35 years ago. He was so thankful I got him a job. He made me a box of chocolate-covered cherries. And I was very excited about it. I love chocolate covered cherries. And I immediately, you know, bit into one of them. And the inside was not that clear liquid, nor Mm -hmm. was it that white liquid. He had put, it was a chocolate syrup center. Oh. It was kind of like a Hershey syrup, but Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just the perfect balance of sweetness. It was amazing. And I had spent my whole life up until that point getting a box of chocolate covered cherries every year for Christmas Mm -hmm. and like for my birthday. Yeah. And he made these for me and they were amazing. And he worked for Brock's at the time. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, we don't like it. Yeah. And so they never came out. (laughs) So I got to have them. Yeah. I never got another box. He never made them again. I mean, he might have made them, but he never sent me yeah. another box. And I've talked to him through the years. I'm like, you know what? I swear you should just write that formulation. Like, we got to take it to another candy company because I, since then, I have stopped completely eating chocolate covered cherries. In the last 35 years, I've he probably, changed your life. Yeah. Well, he kind of ruined it <laughs> because he changed it to the point where I absolutely love this, but he ruined it because seriously, people buy me chocolate covered cherries and I'm like, thanks. Yeah. It's not quite what you were you hoping know? for. I mean, I can take the ones with the liquid, the really clear liquid, but if you get down into the ones where the, it turned white and I'm like, no. So I don't even eat a cheap chocolate covered cherry. Have you had mon cherry? It's a Ferrero product. It's not sold in the U.S., well, then. but it has alcohol in it. And so it's a molded, shell-molded product that has the cherry in it. And I have had some of those in different places in the world, but I've never had this. Yeah. I mean, so I would love to find a company, you know, and say, <laughs> to make you them. And, and I asked him how he did it. And he laughs because he said it was an accident. He said, I just thought I'd try it and see what happened. And he said, there, it shouldn't work. 
Yeah. He said it really scientifically should not work. And but it, it did. It did. And it worked in his kitchen. You know, so he never took it to a plant, never yeah. took it on a plant trial or anything. And and probably speaking to most of the people out there in the food science world, they understand that what works in the kitchen does not no, necessarily that's a no. ever work <laughs> in a plant. And you know, and people like I say to people, you might be able to double your chocolate chip cookie recipe, but you can't they don't just sit down there and go, Okay, we'll take this times one hundred. We'll take this times one hundred and make a batch that's a hundred times bigger and say, Yeah, that'll work. No, it's very much not that. And also like these cookies are moving through an oven. They're they're constantly moving. It's like walking down a football field. Yeah. But it's an oven. And We're freezing. They, yeah. They put in freeze tunnels. Yeah. They go in they go in warm and they come out frozen solid at the other end. And heaven help you, you have a hot, humid day because that product is not gonna run the same as it will in January. Yeah. I, I, I make caramel corn for Christmas and people ask me this summer, can you make something for a, a holiday? I'm like, no, I can't because I make it, I walk it into my dining room, which I keep shut with the heat off, and you can hear a crack as I walk in the room. And in the summer and the humidity with the There's air conditioning, no I cannot get the air conditioning <laughs> cold enough. And I can't figure out how those people on the boardwalks all over the United States make caramel corn around the boardwalk and it's fine. But I can't get mine to do that. And it actually gives me a reprieve, so I can say no. <laughs> nope. Corn syrup. Yeah. <laughs> I just go, no, I can't do that for you. Sorry. So Corn syrup and understanding <laughs> humidity and dextrose equivalence yeah. is how they, they do that. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. I think some people think that making these products is an art. And some of it is an art and some of it's a science because yeah. I know some food companies are mystified by how some things work. And they, I guess if they can get someone to figure it out for them, that's great. But some of it's an art, mm -hmm. but most of it's a science. And candy specifically is, is a nice like marriage between that art and the science. There's so much science that happens on that molecular level that I, I can understand and kind of break down. Thanks Rich Hartel for that. Uh, but a lot of it, like you look at panning, if you're panning by hand, that is still very much an art. Understanding the science, but it is still very much an art. All right, you tell can't, people what panning is. Panning is so like M and M's as a panned item, jelly beans panned item. Um, you have chocolate covered almonds, so it's the art of having a center and then adding hundreds of layers of either liquid sugar or chocolate to a product. And your temperature and your humidity are incredibly crucial so that your chocolate is drying or that your centers are drying before you add that next layer. Like and you wouldn't ever paint twice. And what does a paint. what does a panning piece of equipment look like? Well, the the ones that are automated are ginormous drums. That they look like cement mixers. They do. They really they really do. And they have baffles or a little. Um, I don't know. They're called baffles. So like on your the dry, inside. Right? Well, like your dryer yeah. has those little pieces that stick out. Yep. And so then they have liquid automatic spraying solutions on, in those drums. But then there's also uh, hand panning drums, which have an opening. And it's kind of like this oval 
oblong shape that you have the product in. You turn it on and it rotates kind of like a rock tumbler. Mm-hmm. And you you use a ladle and you ladle in uh, X amount of product and then you hope it dries. <laughs> if your temperatures are and your humidity is correct, it hopefully will work. In candy school, we used to use a vacuum cleaner and we would put dry, um, like a shot vac. We put dry ice in it and run it in reverse so that it was blowing the dry ice into the pans to dry off the, the moisture uh, in the pans. And then before you add your next layer of, of product. So. But these operators in those places, they really are talented. So Cause, talented. Because they know exactly how much to put in that ladle. They, they look at it and they say, you know, we're, we're good to go or no, this is not going to run correctly. And they can do it day in and day out, different temperature conditions and humidities and can really address their process correctly. But that impacts your efficiencies. The amount of product you'll get out on a humid day is not the same that you would get out on a, a dry day. Yeah. So of all the, all the candies out there that you've worked with or even the ones that you eat, which one are your favorite? Take five. Take five is my my favorite favorite too. Um, I was so happy when they came out with that. (laughs) Yeah. So when I worked at Hershey, I think his name was Mike Knoll. He's the guy who created the take five um, from Hershey. And then I had a project where we had to make it in the lab. So it was like, I saw it run in production and then I had to make it in the lab. And I, I have to admit, I'm really happy they make it. Okay. Yeah. But come on, this was an old family recipe that people do all the time. They take that pretzel, they put the caramel, uh, they stick it, and they put the oven. I mean, I looked at it and I went, oh my gosh, did they just get this from like their, one of their family members? Because, but I was so happy that they put it in production because that is one of probably their new, their only of their new candy bars in the last 50 years I like. Yeah. Take five is easily my favorite, followed by a York peppermint patty. Really? I love them in the freezer. In the freezer, okay. It's so good. Pop one out of the freezer. It's just like a nice refreshing after dinner mint. Yeah. Uh, and I like the fun shapes because I, I like all the seasonal gimmicks. <laughs> you know what's really funny is when um, I first started shopping at Sam's Club, my son loved York peppermint patties. I used to buy them. The you tall case. Yeah. <laughs> and, just rem- and I think he ate those faster than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, does he still eat them? I don't know. I have to ask. <laughs> I don't know. He probably still does. I don't buy him. I don't, you know, I, I try not to buy any amount of candy in great quantities. Yeah. Because that's. Just eat it. We, I, we eat it all. Ferrara's tagline is delight in every bite. So we like to bring, you know, some sweetness and joy to the world. And confections is really, people have a choice when they, when they eat it. They're mm-hmm. looking for that comfort and it hopefully brings a smile to someone's face or like they're crying and they're just eating chocolate. So really Confections has connected so many different avenues of people's lives. And I absolutely love the family that I have in the confectionery industry. It's just a, a, such a family friendly place. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that your family likes to bake. I'm, so yes. what is your favorite thing to bake with your family? Favorite thing to bake, I really love brownies. So I have a recipe from Dory Greenspan's book um, that I use for brownies. But from a historical family recipe, I think my mom's favorite, my favorite Christmas cookie that my mom makes are thumbprints. So it's a brown sugar based dough rolled in, I think it's walnuts. Mm -hmm. And then we put a homemade jelly on it so usually raspberry is my favorite one but my sister likes strawberry so really yeah so 
But your mom, historically, her thing is to give out nut rolls. Yes, nut roll season has started in our house. And I know she used to employ all the children. You, yes. <laughs> yes. In this process. Yes, we all have our own nut roll pans now. We all have the whole set. That was a Christmas gift one year. But my mom cranks out like over 200. Well, she used to do 200 when she had an army of children. To, yes. To help her. I used to get those from her. They yeah. were a highlight of our, and for me, it was a highlight because there was only like two or three people in my family that would eat nuts. Yeah. So I had it all to myself. Yes. She always let us cut a hot one. So she, I don't know if she ever really knows how many she makes a year, but it is every batch of six and it's a labor of love. Yes. <laughs> they require, she, oh my gosh, they just take so much time. It's a homemade dough. It's a homemade, you know, nut mixture in the middle. And my dad always said that somebody, I can't remember, the difference between our nut rolls and other people's is ours has nuts in it. Ah! So <laughs> they put a lot of the nuts in the product. And I know, and, and I mean, people might not know this about you, but there were four kids in the family. Yes. Very close in age. Yes. And probably the other thing that we're going to add here at the end is that you are a neighbor of mine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I watched you grow up. Yes. And I remember playing in this house. Yes. <laughs> and, and what was really interesting is you, well, you had four children in your family. We had three. So three of you are the same age as three of mine. Yes. You just have that extra one stuck in there. Yes. You know, we didn't have one for your for your sister, Laura. We, it's too we bad. have plenty of other neighbors. So <laughs> I know. And I remember all the ski trips you guys went on. Yes. And all the things that you used to do. Oh, my gosh. We always had so much fun. It playing. was. The neighborhood. We, there were so many kids, too. I know. I just saw the nannies the other day yeah. and so fun to come home and connect over the holidays. Yep. See everybody. So yes. it was very nice to see that uh, somebody in my neighborhood went into food science since my whole food my, industry, yep, my, my whole business is wrapped around the food industry. So to have one go in and do that, that's, uh, that's nice. Yeah. I, I hope that people like, I love food science. I think Everybody I talk to, like I said at the beginning, knows that I love food science and love food. And I just love how it connects people. And I hope more people do it. The majors are growing. I hope they do too. Well, Monica, thanks for being with us today. Of course. I appreciate the conversation. It's nice seeing you again. So great to see you guys. And, uh, thanks for having me. You're welcome.